You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last 11 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, uh, this episode of the CME is going to be a little bit different, and full disclosure, we're recording it on Thursday, February 24th, owing to my upcoming travel schedule. We know that this decision may be fraught, given that we are headed into a John Jones fight week, and we have learned through hard-won experience that absolutely anything can happen during a John Jones fight week. But we're hoping the current card for UFC 285 will hold up until at least Monday when this episode will go live. By that time, I expect this event will be moved to California and Cyril Gaon will be fighting Bo Nickel in an open weight fight for the interim UFC cruiserweight title or some shit like that. But we're going to do our best here, right? Or we are going to drive the nail into the coffin just by doing this. Just by us sitting here doing this, we may be dooming this entire event. So I guess if anything happens, people can uh, direct their hate mail to co-main-event-podcast at gmail.com. You know what? Just go ahead, write that email. It'll be cathartic for you and save it to the drafts because you're going to say some <laughs> things that you'll regret. You're going to say some That's things that, that upon reflection, you realize you don't really mean that. That was just the hurt talking. Yeah, no, I should pre-write an apology, I guess. Uh, but the truth is we had to get something recorded for UFC 285 because it's an absolute monster of a card, man. Uh, obviously, we've been waiting for John Jones's heavyweight debut for a long time. It's possible Cyril Gaon is the best heavyweight left in the UFC now that Francis Ngannou has gone on to bigger things. Uh, so that is an absolutely insane matchup in and of itself, but we shouldn't let that single fight overshadow the rest of this card, which is also kind of bananas, to tell you the truth. You got Valentina Shevchenko putting the women's flyweight title on the line against Alexa Grasso. You've got undefeated prospect Shavkat Rachmanov on this card. You've got undefeated prospect Ian Gary on this card. You've got undefeated prospect Bo Nickel, who I mentioned a second ago, on this card. You've got Mateusz Gamrot versus Jalen Turner in an important lightweight fight. If you've been saving your money, this might be a good one to break break the bank on, man. Uh, they're doing it big down at T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas on Saturday night. How much of that will we get to in this next hour? That remains to be seen. Ben, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this shit. Remember, you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast proper. This show drops every Monday for free in your timelines and podcast libraries. If you really want to support the show, you know where to find us. Ben Folks and I will be over on the Patreon page all week, churning out that additional MMA content. We've got the Wednesday live chat where we take your questions for a full 60 minutes. We've got Thursday's Doing the Damn Thing podcast, and we've got Friday's Power Hour, a full extra curated hour of MMA talk from Ben and I. Come 
come get down with us. We've got a patronage tier for every budget. Head on over to patreon.com slash co-main event and sign up to join the team. Support the podcast that supports you so well. Keep the discourse unfettered and keep this train on the tracks headed into 2023. Again, that's patreon.com slash co-main event. All right, let's get started here, Ben. I was just going to ask you to begin our discussion of John Jones versus Cyril Gaon. What's your personal hype level for this fight? High. It's yeah. extremely high. Not only because a part of me is just excited to have John Jones back. Arguably the best fighter in the history of the sport. But also, I don't know what really to expect of this John Jones at this point in this weight class. And so it feels like we're going to have some John Jones questions answered in a way that we haven't in a long, long time, you know, because it's it's one thing when dogs are going crazy. Uh, We were doing stuff like one Light heavyweight title defense after another. It was even when we had a, a legit rivalry for John Jones with Daniel Cormier. Fine. You know, that that stuff all had a certain appeal. But this one, it just feels like... This feels like the most losable fight for at least two to three different reasons that John Jones has been in, maybe in his entire MMA career. Yeah. And, but it also feels like if John Jones wanted to, with one night's work sweep away a lot of the shit that we have said about him, or at least put something positive on the Wikipedia page somewhere between the whole sections devoted to arrests and drug test failures. He could do it here and just come in to heavyweight, beat Cyril Ghosn, be the the UFC uh, heavyweight champion, albeit with, you know, some, some mitigating circumstances. But then stand there and be like, hey, I'm still John Jones. I am still that dude. Yeah. Respect my name. And we would yeah. have to be like, okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, I agree with you. My hype level is also extremely high. As you said, there's just a ton of unknowns here, man. And it's going to be fun to find out the answers to those questions one way or another. How will John Jones react to a fight where he is perhaps not? the biggest guy in the cage when he can't just go out there and roughneck guys when he's not choking Lyoto Machida unconscious and dropping him on the canvas like a sack of dirty laundry. You know, how will he react to maybe having a bigger fighter or maybe even a more dangerous fighter across the octagon from him? And then, you know, on the Cyril Gaon side, I just have to say he has been very, very good. His only career loss up to this point was that UFC 270 decision against Francis Ngannou where it seemed like he was cruising for the first couple of rounds, and then Francis Ngannou channeled his inner wrestler and went out there and stole the last three rounds to win the unanimous decision and uh, reclaim his heavyweight title, I guess you could say. Uh, So Cyril Ghosn has looked very good when he is able to go out there and do his stuff, but he also showed some fairly glaring weaknesses in that Francis Ngannou fight. So I'm interested to see both of these guys when they meet up on Saturday night. Uh, to settle what I suppose will be the very disputed UFC heavyweight title, which leads me to my next question. How much does it hurt this fight, in your opinion? How much does it hurt the UFC? How much does it hurt the winner here that Francis Ngannou is no longer involved and that he walked away 
from this company with the gold still firmly ensconced on his giant shoulder. <laughs> well, we do have to be honest with ourselves because the UFC broadcast is probably not going to be honest with us about this and say that Francis Ngannou will haunt these proceedings like a ghost. Yeah. He, even if he's not there, even if he's nowhere to be found, even if he's not even at Buffalo Wild Wings watching on pay-per-view. Just the fact that Francis Ngannou left the way he did as heavyweight champion after beating Cyril Gaon, the fact that it was the idea of Jones versus Ngannou that really just got our, our skin tingling at the very thought of it. And this can't help but feel like a little bit of a consolation prize. Granted, yeah. it's still a really good consolation prize. Just because John Jones at heavyweight, a promise fulfilled after all these years is already going to be interesting. And to go up against Cyril Gaon, who, you know, stylistically is an interesting fight for him. And who seemed like, you know, maybe if he could have just fended off a takedown here or there, maybe he could have beat at least the one-legged version of Francis Ngannou. So it's not like he sucks or anything. We've seen Cyril Gaon go out there and look awesome against other heavyweights. So it is still a legit heavyweight fight for John Jones. But... The Francis will be the guy that we're not talking about talking about for this entire thing. You know, obviously that would have been the better thing. I'm not going to be mad that we ended up here. I've made my peace with it at this point, but it, it, it does feel like this is, you know, backup plan number one. Yeah. But still the backup plan. Yeah. And I guess that speaks uh, to the UFC's continued dominance over the marketplace, at least of the talent worldwide in MMA, that you can lose a once-in-a-generation fight like Francis Ngannou versus John Jones and just pretty much replace it with something that is still going to be very awesome. Yeah. Uh, but I agree with you that this is going to be one of those times where if the UFC broadcast team doesn't acknowledge the absence of Francis Ngannou somehow it's going to be pretty glaring, man. And I, you know, I realize that they're fully capable of going through an entire broadcast with an extremely glaring omission and never saying anything about it. But at the same time, and I think you've made this point in the past, if you are a person who just casually follows this stuff and you tune in, you know, you hear UFC 285 is a big deal. Maybe you recognize John Jones and you tune in. Aren't you going to be like, wait a second, didn't the big guy from Africa just beat this big guy from France? Like, didn't that just happen? And now the big guy from France is fighting a guy that is supposed to be John Jones, but looks much bigger than I remember him being. It's going to be confusing <laughs> if nobody is like, oh, by the way, the previous heavyweight champion departed because he is on the cusp of making a lot more money in a different kind of fight. So I think that that will be... Uh, a little bit weird if they don't say anything about it. And we're always going mean, to be thinking say about something, right? Like the thing is, what will they say about it? Because they got to yeah. say Francis and God, like when last week, like we, we saw Cyril gone fighting with a, in a heavyweight title fight. It was against Francis and He looked good at first, but he lost Francis. And, and we got to mention that the title's vacant. Why is it vacant? The, what I will be interested to see is, do we go with, Francis Ngannou thought he could make easier money elsewhere. Francis Ngannou didn't want to be in the UFC. Uh, you know, what What kind of a narrative do we go with? Because we know how Dana White likes to play it. Like, oh, didn't want to fight. If you don't want to be here, you don't have to be here after you have exhausted every contractual provision that we were using to keep you here. And 
we know what the reality is, but we also know the UFC broadcast team is a function of the UFC as a promotion. It is not as independent, even as other sports broadcasts are. So there's no way they're going to go out there and be like, Francis Ngannou wanted even just a little bit of contract uh, wiggle room, a little bit of uh, provisions put in that tilted the balance toward not even just him, but according to him, all fighters and not just the UFC. And the UFC would not budge on that, and therefore he's gone, and we have to find a new heavyweight champion. Yeah. There's no way they're going to well, say that. We know how uh, Dana White is going to handle it. It'll be more interesting to see how they, what, if anything, they say on the broadcast. I also think the extent to which we will continue to look over our shoulders for Francis Ngannou may depend a little bit on who wins this fight. Because if yeah. Cyril Gaon wins it, then we're like, well, he's the UFC champion, but we just saw him lose to Francis Ngannou. Uh, you know, a short time ago. If John Jones wins, then at least we have the unknown. Then we'll probably still be mourning the loss of the John Jones, Francis Ngannou fight. But at least then, like, there will be some questions. There will be some some things uh, that we probably will never have answered about how that fight would have gone. And and at least maybe John Jones could lay claim to being the number one heavyweight in the world. So I think it'll be interesting just to see how this thing plays out, Ben. Does it surprise you or interest you to know that as we sit here on Thursday morning, according to DraftKings, John Jones is going off as a slight favorite here. He is minus 155, and Cyril Gaon is going off at plus 135. Does that surprise you at all? Not really. I think that John Jones' wrestling base and the very real possibility that he could just go right out there and take Cyril Gaon down and exploit him on the mat right away. The way we saw him do to other opponents, frankly, when he was really of a mind to, I think that that possibility alone, after what you saw of Cyril Gaon's essentially non-existent defensive wrestling game against Francis Ngannou, that right there is enough to make John Jones a little bit of a favorite. Because Cyril Gaon, yeah. when, he, when he can get people who will fight his kind of fight, he's deadly, man. We know, we, we've seen that at this point. And he's also not dumb. He's a he's careful and he's strategic. So you have to be able to force him into some other kind of fight if you don't want to think that you can beat him at his own game. And John Jones, though, seems like at least if he is anywhere close to the John Jones he used to be, he seems like he has that in him. Um, yeah. The fact that, that he's only a small favorite tells you that the odds makers think there's at least a chance that Cyril Gaon has either improved his takedown defense enough or John Jones will find out that, you know, as we saw him find out a little bit against Dominic Reyes, uh, bigger guys aren't as easy for him to just take down and ragdoll and dominate. And then when he can't do that, what happens if he has to stand yeah. there at, at kickboxing range with Cyril Gaon? Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is a, a lifetime achievement betting line for yeah. John Jones. This is a body of work betting line here. We know how dominating he was for such a long time at light heavyweight. And obviously the sharps are giving him some of that credit as he moves up to heavyweight as they should. Uh, but you're right. This is probably the slimmest odds we've had on John Jones in recent memory. I don't recall what the betting lines were for his last couple of fights at 205 pounds, but you got to think he was a, he was a bigger favorite than this. And it probably makes a nod toward those, unknowns that we were talking about a minute ago i guess uh, here's another unknown for you 
And I guess this is another question that we may never find out the answer to unless it's something the UFC feels like bragging about. And that is what the ultimate buy rate will be for this pay-per-view. I have the sense that John Jones against Cyril Gaon is a marketable fight. I have a sense. You know, John Jones used to be kind of a, a mid-major pay-per-view draw for the UFC, upper middle class pay-per-view draw. Let's say he could do 500,000 buys, uh, you know, on a on a good day, maybe 750. Cyril Gaon, probably more of an unknown. Uh, I don't know if he brings a lot of name recognition to the table, except as the guy who recently lost to Francis Ngannou. But it's been so long since we saw John Jones out there, how much name recognition, how much familiarity or interest do you think not just MMA fans will have, but the general public? You know, I think that there's probably a sizable number of current UFC fans who, as we heard on the live chat just recently, uh, are, you know, maybe pandemic era UFC fans or people who have been following the sport for legitimately two, three years now who have never seen live a John Jones fight. And even if you are somebody who has been a fan for slightly longer than that, maybe you've never seen a good John Jones fight life. <laughs> right. You know, maybe you just saw yeah. kind of the seemingly not terribly motivated John Jones, the the sort of like the the, the pale shadow of John Jones in those Dominic Reyes and Tiago Santos fights. And other than that, the really amazing John Jones that people got so excited about and people felt like had changed the sport exists for you really in highlights. And maybe you mostly know about him as the guy who was a champion, walked away, and then was in the news because he was always getting in trouble. So it's yeah. entirely possible that the the rate of churn of MMA fans has made it so that John Jones does not seem like as big a deal to as many people anymore. Here's where I, I will be interested to see what the UFC promotional machine can do for this fight, though. Because as we talked about multiple times in the JSF era, the UFC seems to be kind of just sort of plugging it into the algorithm and letting it tell you what, what we do when. We got a fight night this week. Fine. We're going to do the fight night. We'll put some ads for the next week's pay-per-view all through the fight night. We'll see if that's enough. When fight week kicks off, then we'll get into high gear of media day, press conferences, weigh-ins, all that kind of stuff. Kind of painting by numbers in that sense. But can you ramp it up to do anything special for an event that feels special? And that seems like the conversation we were just having about UFC 284 in Australia, because it's like, here you have the thing. You have the number one versus number two pound for pound. You have a super fight between two champions. Can you ramp it up? Can you show us as the promoter that this is something special other than another UFC event with some gold on the poster? And I would think when we used to talk about this kind of thing, like John Jones going up to heavyweight fighting for the heavyweight title, we'd say, just put them on Sports Center, man. Put the two big guys on Sports Center. Whether it was John Jones and Francis Ngannou or Jones and Stipe or Jones and Cyril Gaon, put put the two guys on there. Show that these are two big dudes. Show some highlights that they've had of great knockouts, great finishes they've had. And tell people, heavyweight championship of the goddamn world. And that ought to be something. And yet, I don't, we also exist in a more fractured media environment now than we ever have before. You go to ESPN Plus now. I'll tell you what, when I go to fire up ESPN Plus Chad, this week to watch my hockey, watch my hockey games throughout the week. You know what I see uh, advertised to me right up top there? Uh, Jake Paul and Tommy Fury. 
yeah. told me to buy that pay-per-view for forty nine yeah. ninety nine. I will not. I will not be <laughs> buying that for fifty bucks. But I realize that we're kind of everybody from the UFC to ESPN Plus. Everybody is trying to sell the next thing they have to sell, thinking about the next weekend stuff. And it's hard for anybody to think too far down the line. But I do wonder how that affects the buy rate for this because it does seem like you probably need to do a little bit more viewer education around John Jones and what this fight actually means than you would have if you had managed to do this, you know, six months or a year even after he relinquished his light heavyweight title and said he was going up. Yeah. Hey, man, that Jake Paul, Tommy Fury pay-per-view is about half price than what you're going to get from the UFC. So if you're balling on a budget, I don't know, man. Maybe think about it. Maybe think about it a little bit. It would seem like this is a card that the UFC promotional machine should be able to get behind because as good as UFC 284 was, as I mentioned at the top of the show, this one is stacked, man, almost from top to bottom. John Jones, Cyril gone in the main event, Shevchenko versus Grasso in the co-main, Jeff Neal against Shavkat Rachmanov in a welterweight fight, Mateusz Gamrot versus Jalen Turner at 155, and then at middleweight, Bo Nickel versus Jamie Pickett, which is obviously one people will be wanting to see. Man, you look at the at the preliminary card here, you got Cody Garbs, you got DDP, you got Derek Brunson, you got Ian Gary, you got Jessica Penne, just a bunch of people that you have at least heard of, if nothing else, which is a bit of a departure from what the UFC gives us at times here. Uh, so it seems like this one should be a good seller for the UFC and a kind of impressive to put on these back-to-back pay-per-views, UFC 284 and UFC 285, that just seem like uh, not only are they relevant and have interesting good fights, but they're also just, you know, they figure to both be very, very entertaining. Yeah. All right. On the topic that, that some new MMA fans that there exists a class of MMA fan at this point that may never have seen John Jones fight before. How much do you think is at stake here for John Jones Uh, What can he prove if he wins and what will, I guess, what will be thought of him if he loses? Is this a fight where he plants a flag up at the top of the MMA goat list, you know, in front of Anderson Silva and Fedor Emelianenko and George St. Pierre and anybody else that might be in the running for that and says, what's up now? What's up now that I have done this? Yeah, I mean, I think some of it maybe depends on how he wins. If John Jones wins an unimpressive split decision, then that'll be different than if John Jones goes out there and finishes Cyril gone. But if he wins, looks good doing it, I think that we all, at least in the immediate aftermath, will be like, well, say what you will about John Jones the person. John Jones the fighter really is that great. Because he went up a division, he took his damn time to do it, But he finally got up there. He got belts at light heavyweight and heavyweight. And if you look at the realistic landscape with Francis Ngannou gone from the UFC, if John Jones can go out there and beat Cyril Gane, there's a chance he could hang on to that heavyweight title for a little while. And you and I both know you don't have to hang on to it for that long to (laughs) enter into the all-time lore of long-standing UFC heavyweight champions. You know? So... I do think that it will be a kind of reevaluation moment for us with John Jones if he goes out there and he wins this fight 
and wins it very conclusively where we will go like, all right, John Jones is still John Jones. And we're entering a new era of the John Jones story. If he loses, though, then I think the there's going to be a lot of people sort of waiting to dance on his grave just because of how he's comported himself outside the cage a whole lot. But also there'll be a lot of people who will be like, see, look, this guy spent three years on the shelf and let his best years get away. And now we'll, we'll never know what he could have done if he had stayed active during those three years if, or, you know, if he had just made some different choices along the way. And instead it's we're headed down the downslope of the mountain. And yeah. we all know MMA fans, even though we learn from time to time that sometimes our snap judgments prove to be wrong when we get a little bit more data to work with, it's not going to stop us from doing it in the immediate aftermath of the fight. We're still going to yeah. do that shit if he gets knocked out by Cyril Gaon. You know, he's going to be memed to hell and back by Sunday morning. Yeah. No, he's liable to be walking through an airport with a pillow over his face like Ronda Rousey. Uh, he will get such negative treatment. And you're right. A lot of people have just been waiting for the opportunity. In fact, not really waiting, kind of piling on John <laughs> Jones anyway. Uh, and that goes back to before he gave them a really good reason to pile on. Uh, but I have the sense that he could kind of set a lot of that right if he manages to have maybe not just a victory on Saturday, but a, a an extended run at heavyweight. Because I feel like even now, the lament about John Jones is, yeah, he's been great. But imagine what he could have accomplished if he didn't spend multiple stretches outside the cage, if he didn't uh, give up the light heavyweight title on a couple of occasions because of drug tests and other kinds of out of the cage problems. Uh, you know, if he if he manages to to win the heavyweight title and then even defend it a couple of times, I don't know if you can totally ask those questions anymore, because. <laughs> What else could you want from the guy? You know, he's in terms of lost potential. I don't know that you could even make the argument anymore that that there was anything missing if he manages to become a two division champion. Although I will say here he is at 35 years old showing up after uh, all, more than three years out of the cage and having not looked that impressive in his last two fights against Dominic Reyes and Tiago Santos. What do you think? we can expect from John Jones in this fight. And is there any way to even know what to expect from John Jones in this fight? You know, it's tough because we don't know how the, just the question of age alone, we don't know how that will affect him. We also don't know how much of what we saw in his last few fights was, as he has put it since, uh, a sort of lack of motivation. He wasn't. He didn't have the fear of any of these guys. It didn't seem like anything special to go out there and win those fights anymore because he had been doing it so long and it just felt like routine to him. And he, he needed something scarier and something bigger to get him to really dig deep and be all he's capable of. Because like, that sounds at, on some level like that's a very self-serving explanation. Be like, why, sure. why wasn't I that good? Because I was bored with how good I had been up to that point. And so that's why it wasn't that didn't seem like I was doing that great in some of those fights. Uh, and yet there could be some truth, at least to that. So 
Yeah, there's. It seems like if you're not scared of the possibility of going up to heavyweight after all these years off and getting starched by Cyril Gaon, then you haven't been paying attention. So at least that that ought to be there. But it's also that we don't know what may have been lost just in time slipping away and all this time you've been gone. Plus, who do you know who can be gone for three years and not be a little rusty? Right. Every once in a while, we've seen somebody like Dominic Cruz when he first came back after being gone for and dealing with so many injuries and everything. And he showed up, granted, against a little lesser competition, but could show up and just blitz through people. And you're just like, okay, that guy can still do it. And for John Jones, it's tough to know because so much seems to have changed. Uh, just a new weight class, new body. Also, at some point, getting kicked out of your gym. Yeah. Your longtime gym when they weren't happy with you. And it seems like a lot of stuff had to reorganize itself for John Jones to put together a fight camp and get ready and get in here. So how could some of that not impact the performance, whether it's for good or bad? Yeah. And I, I guess you got to respect the fact that he's been gone more than three years and he's coming in immediately to fight Cyril gone for the heavyweight title in a weight class he's never fought in before. It's not like... John Jones showed up looking for a, uh, you know, a comeback fight or an easy one. He wasn't like, he didn't say, do you have anybody who works at a beef plant yeah. that you could give me? Do you have anybody with a day job? Could I fight a postman, uh, in this fight? No, he's fighting Cyril gone. The guy who was going to be in the vacant heavyweight title fight, no matter who the opponent was. So I, you know, you got to give John Jones credit for that. Uh, and I agree with you when you come out saying, I just wasn't motivated for those last two fights, and that's why I almost lost. That sounds to me like some classic fighter shit, like some shit a fighter says after things don't go the way that they wanted to. But at the same time, one of the things that you have to look at, as you said before, is the last time John Jones had a good fight or had a fight that perhaps he could get himself excited for because previous to those Dominic Reyes and Tiago Santos fights, the UFC 235 fight where he just dismantled Anthony Smith in that one before that, uh, Alexander Gustafson in the rematch where I guess, you know, he could probably talk himself into some motivation since Alexander Gustafson previous to that had maybe given him his toughest fight. And then the one before that, you know, maybe that's the last time July of 2017, uh, in the the rematch with Daniel Cormier that was eventually made a no contest. So it has been a while, perhaps, since John Jones had anything that he felt like he could get motivated around and maybe give 100%. And a lot of, a lot of things have changed during that time. So again, you know, I just, I don't know that there's any way to really properly forecast what we're going to see out there. And one of the things that I wonder about is how much all of this added weight and added bulk will either help or hinder him as he moves up to heavyweight because we have seen guys do this before. Yeah. Right? We are no strangers in this sport to guys, especially at heavyweight, being like, the thing that I'm missing is being enormous. And then, <laughs> you know, they they get a new trainer and they hang some chains over the bench press bar and they, they get huge and ripped. And then the next thing you hear from them is, it didn't help me. I felt like I was too big. You know, I didn't have the energy. Now I'm bringing back the old me. Yeah. I'm slimming back down. What happens to John Jones going out there, you know, being 240, 250, who God knows how big he'll be when he comes in to weigh in uh, for this fight. And, and you know, always being a huge light heavyweight, but kind of having that sort of svelte uh, body type. And now he's maybe come in just looking like a huge monster. How does that affect him? 
You know, we've kind of seen this before, right? Like from John Jones. Remember when he got super into uh, powerlifting? And I believe it was before that Ovent St. Prue fight. And came in there and looked a little physically different, but looked bulkier. And I distinctly remember the audio, the corner audio that we caught at the end of that one was as soon as the fight was over, uh, Greg Jackson and Mike Winklejohn saying to each other, the powerlifting stuff was a mistake. Yeah. Like that might be the direct quote. Like I think Greg Jackson saying like the powerlifting stuff was a mistake and Mike Winklejohn saying, yeah, that basically it made him bulky, less dynamic and not as fluid uh, like in his approach that which had been a really great strength of his early on in his career and so that is that will be an interesting thing to see like I, I mean in a way i guess we should be encouraged that he took this long to do it because you know remember what gsp used to always say i never take the steroid so if i go yeah. up and wait I, I need time to do it correctly and with john jones uh you know it's, it's still up, out for debate whether he took the steroid or knowingly took the steroid, but he took the time, put on this weight and kind of form himself a new body and has, you would think had at least time to adjust to that and to see how it feels and how it's, how it might make his fighting style different. I think a lot might depend on what his game plan is against Cyril gone with that new body and knowing the opponent that he's dealing with. Yeah. I actually distinctly remember a UFC broadcast when they were talking about the possibility of George St. Pierre moving up to 185, and Joe Rogan lamented that it would take him a long time to do it because he quote insisted on doing it naturally. And I was sitting at home thinking, how else would he do it? Joe Rogan? <laughs> how else would he move up to 185? Uh, but I, you know, I'll be real honest with you. Many of the things that we have said leading up to this point in the show do not give me a ton of confidence as to how John Jones is going to fare when he goes out there and makes his heavyweight debut against one of the toughest guys that he could fight at this weight. So maybe the million dollar question is, what is the path to victory against Cyril Gaon for John Jones, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess kind of what I was getting at thinking about how you want to use all that bulk and that body because as much as I like the John Jones throwing spinning shit and creating his own new crazy strikes and out here uh, reinventing the game I don't think that's the way you want to go with it with Cyril gone I don't think you just want to spend much time on the feet with Cyril gone at all if you don't have to and at least so far there is no indication that you have to because if you saw that Francis Ngannou fight and you're John Jones, don't you come away from that thinking like, well, yeah, he's got a year. He's got a year to put a singlet on. He And if he doesn't spend that entire year in the Hawkeyes wrestling room, you know, then I'm going to eat him up because I'm just going to go in there and I'm, I'll blast double this dude in the first round and then I will just feed him elbows from the top and that'll be it. And we know John Jones can do that we've seen him do that to people and like if i'm john jones i tell myself the the cardinal sin in this fight the one that i could not live with myself if i, if I made a mistake that mistake would be not at least forcing cyril gone to prove to me 
that he could stop my takedowns. Yeah. Not just one either. I would make if you, if you do not if you let Cyril Gunn come into this fight and get out of this fight without shutting down your wrestling game, without showing that he can do that, then it's on you. You deserve to lose yeah. that fight. Yeah, and yet it's been a long time since we saw that version of John Jones. Like he's primarily been a stand-up fighter in many of his most recent appearances. And as I said, after the uh, Tiago Santos and Dominic Reyes fights, it seemed as though John Jones had matured into a completely different fighting style than he had when he first came in to the UFC. And in some ways grew into a fighting style that didn't seem as effective as the one that he had early on in his career where, you know, maybe he was less of a seasoned MMA fighter, but he would just go out there and put you on your back one way or another and beat you with ground and pound from the top. In his most recent appearances, he's looked far more uh, methodical on the feet and, you know, reactive, I think. Like he was going to go out there and see what the other guy was doing and then kind of make it up on the fly as to what he was going to do and kind of let the fight come to him and exploit any weaknesses that he saw. And I don't necessarily knew if, know if you can do all that stuff against Ciro Gone. I think you got to, at the risk of... uh harnessing an MMA cliche here. I think you got to bring the old John Jones back in this fight. I think you you do got to go out there and try to bring your wrestling to the fore and, you know, make it a little bit dirty, clinch with this guy, try to take him down, see if you can take him down. Uh, and then, you know, another thing that we saw from John Jones, especially during the height of his light heavyweight run, is that he seemed to take a lot of pleasure in going out there and beating somebody else at their own game. Yeah. And again... You, I don't think you can do that against Cyril Gone, man. I think you better, uh, I think you better go back to basics here and and dance with the the skills that brought you to the to this point in your career. Yeah, I I had that same thought, but I was like, it's one thing to do that against Chael Sonnen, who doesn't belong in that weight class to begin with. And you're gonna say, all right, he thinks he's the wrestler. I'm gonna show him I'm the wrestler, and I'm just gonna bully him that way. Sure, you can do that to Chael Sonnen. Don't don't fuck around and do that with Cyril Gone. Again, yeah. if you do not at least make him stop some takedowns, then you don't deserve to win. Because that would seem like the most obvious thing and the thing that like you excel at, he has shown he doesn't, even if he has made some serious gains in his takedown defense and his defensive wrestling since that Francis has gone to fight, you should still be able to work him in that aspect of the game. Yeah. And then I wonder what John Jones does if he loses. Does he skedaddle back down to light heavyweight? Is that a thing that he is even physically capable of doing at this point, having added all that extra weight? Or does he hang around at heavyweight? Does he basically say, I'm a heavyweight now for life? Uh, Curtis Blades, Stipe Miocic, Tai Tuivasa, if you want some, come get some, because I'm, you know, I'm here for the foreseeable future. I don't think he skedaddles with a loss. I mean, again, some may depend on how he loses or, or something like that, but I, it's hard for me to imagine a situation where John Jones goes in there, loses one heavyweight fight that he's had after spending three years to make this move, and then says, you know what, fuck it. I'm going back to 205. Like, I just, I don't think his ego would allow him to do that. I think that, there, physically, I think he could probably do it. I think he could probably at least slim down enough to be within weight-cutting distance of 205 again. I mean, at least to think he could. It might prove that that's not a great idea for your body either. But I I think that the physics of being able to do it would be less an obstacle 
than the mental side of being able to do it. To say to himself, I can't do heavyweight. Those guys are just too big. They're all going to beat me. And I'm, I'll never be a heavyweight. I don't think he's capable of saying that to himself. I think that if he did lose, it would just make him double down on it and decide even more, I got to prove that I can be a heavyweight. And then he probably shows up beating up Tai Tuivasa uh, six months later. I guess on the Cyril Gone side of things, we talked about what was at stake for John Jones, and I think it's a lot, it's a lot, but here you, in Cyrogon, you got a guy who was the UFC interim champion. He seemed on his way to defeating Francis and Gano in their fight. He's a guy, you just look at him physically, you see him fight and you think he's got all the potential in the world. And yet you look up at the odds and you see you're an underdog against this guy coming up to heavyweight for the first time. Don't you kind of got to stop and say, whoa, 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 wait a second here. Like, I'm the heavyweight. I'm the guy who has done this before. I'm the former champion in in this weight class. Uh, where's my respect? And so I wonder in his mind, besides just claiming the gold, what is at stake here for Cyril Gaon? I mean, if Cyril Gaon wants an opportunity to be remembered other than the guy who had a cup of coffee with the interim belt and then couldn't stop takedowns even from a guy who's not a takedown specialist, like if he wants to be regarded as a serious for real heavyweight champion in the UFC this is the chance to do that because brother if you go out there and John Jones steamrolls you and he's the heavyweight champion after that if he sticks around maybe he fights an aged Stipe Miocic next you know uh one where he will be the spring chicken maybe he fights Curtis Blades or something if we run out of ideas after that and the UFC finally agrees to give Curtis Blades a title shot but It'll be a while before the wheel spins back around to Cyril Gaon, you know? Yeah. So this is kind of a big one for him, I think. And plus, you you get to be the guy to really put an L on John Jones's record. That's huge. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, They did just announce Curtis Blades against Sergei Pavlovich, and I admit it would be a very strange feeling in the UFC heavyweight division no matter who wins the John Jones versus Cyril Gaon fight to be like, all right, the ne- next up, Sergey Pavlovich or Curtis Blades. So, you know, Miocic has already said he wants to get something on the books with the winner here, which would be another fight against a guy who has had an extended absence from the cage where I'm not sure there would be any way to tell what he's going to bring when he gets there. But that would certainly be the more marketable and perhaps more interesting fight just to have Miocic come back in and fight the winner of this one. The the thing that I wonder about Cyril Gaon is sometimes the defensive wrestling can be a hard loophole to close. It can be a hard weakness to shore up in a guy's skill set, especially if he doesn't have a legitimate or traditional background in any of the grappling arts, which I don't think Cyril Gaon does. And yet, didn't that seem like the one thing that like he needed to close that door and then he would kind of have a significant advantage over most of the people that he's going to fight in this weight class. And so I wonder what he's done in preparation. And I wonder to the extent to which he has, you know, been athletic enough or been uh, a fast enough learner to close that hole, because if that's not there anymore, then I think you have a much, much more dangerous Cyril gone. Yeah, you absolutely do. But I think that that, you know, you mentioned that, that, 
defensive wrestling can be a hard hole to close if that's a problem for you in your game. And I think that it's that way for a couple different reasons. One, of course, is just that, you know, if you get planted on your back and you can't get your feet set and get your offense going, then it's hard to win a fight if your whole thing is standing there and knocking people out. But the other thing is that if you have to spend the entire fight thinking about, is the, is the takedown coming now? Is it coming now? Do, do I don't want to throw. I, 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 I'm going to take kicks completely out of my game because I'm worried about them being used to take me down. And I don't want to throw more than one punch at a time because I don't want to overcommit, have him change levels on me and uh, get an easy takedown on me. It can just shut down your offense. And so it, it could concern you to the point where even if you're not actually getting taken down, or not getting taken down much, you are losing just because you're not doing your stuff. And, you know, we've seen, especially later in his career, and he did it against Conor McGregor, Habib managed to use that to open up the striking, where he's not necessarily a great striker, but he's going to be able to land some shots just because he is weaponizing your fear of his takedowns. And it can open you up that way. And I think that, you know, John Jones is definitely a really strategic fighter, and he he's going to see that possibility there. You also have to wonder, you go into a fight like this with your serial gun, you know your wrestling was exposed, you know John Jones comes from a wrestling background, he's probably going to try you there. you got to tell yourself that there's at least a chance of you getting taken down at some point in this fight. And so then the question becomes, what then? You don't want to, I think, tell yourself, I'm going to work a ground game against John Jones. I'm going to sweep him or try to submit him off my back or anything. Like you got to get the fuck up. John yeah. Jones takes you down. Like that needs to be your whole thing. But then also, if you're going to try to get up, John Jones is a good enough wrestler and a good. And remember, had great ground and pound early on in his career, uh, breaking people's whole shit down there. That like he can use those to both advance position when he sees you. You got to take a little bit of a chance to try to get back to your feet, or he can use it to just open up with elbows from the top, and it might not take more than one or two, and you're in trouble. And so. You don't want to just lay there, hold on, hope for a referee stand-up, but also you're going to have to expose yourself to risk every time in order to get up. And so how do you go about that? And at some extent, it's got to be just a question of where do you want to spend your time in training? Do you want to spend your time on saying, we're not going to get taken down, we're going to uh, circle off these takedown attempts, get back to our range and make him pay for every single one and punish him on the feet? Or do you want to spend a little more time being like, he's probably going to get us down at some point. How do we safely yeah. get back up and get back to our shit? Yeah. I would say Cyril gone by triangle is probably the least likely outcome in this o- fight. Oma Plata. I think yeah, Cyril, Cyril gone via Oma Plata. He's sitting around thinking, my Oma Plata is sharp right now, man. My roll Everybody to says, knee bar from the bottom is really... It's killing guys in the in the room. I'm getting a, getting it all the time. They, everybody says my Oma Plata is way better than they thought it would be. <laughs> and you know what? Working on that wrestling, being on the mat, trying to get up, trying to deal with big, sweaty heavyweights on top of you, that's less fun. That's yeah. less fun than doing the other shit that Cyril Gon probably likes to do. So who knows what he's been spending his training camp going doing. Although, man, if you if you have even a couple of brain cells to rub together, and we know Cyril Gon and I think Fernand Lopez also are smart guys, you have to know that the blueprint is out there at this yeah. point. We saw it. We saw it exploited by Francis Ngannou. So you got to think that that has been one of the primary 
areas of focus in the training camp is to try to ward off the wrestling attack that John Jones might bring. At the same time, though, I remember when I went to Francis Ngannou's house in 2018 or 2019, and this was when he was training with Fernando Lopez at MMA Factory, the same place that Cyril Gon still trains today. And he was very dismissive at that point in his career of wrestling. And he was like, oh, I don't want to roll around on the floor with a bunch of sweaty guys. Uh, and I don't think it was until after the Stipe Miocic fight, the first one, I could be mistaken. I don't think it was until after that, that Jones or that Nganu kind of decamped from that fight team and moved full time to Las Vegas and started training at Extreme Couture. Now, Cyril Gone is still over in Paris, training at the same gym with the same coach. And you just look at the list of UFC fighters that MMA Factory has put out there. Francis Ngannou, Cyril Gan, Iwan Kutalaba, Nasruddin Imavov, and then, uh, you know, some lesser known guys. Uh, Sokaju is on their list of MMA fighters, but it's it's not exactly turning out an American top team like production level of UFC fighters. And I just wonder, is Cyril Gan kind of making the Conor McGregor, Ronda Rousey, Brock Lesnar mistake here where he's not going out? go into different camps to round out the skill set. And I think it's it's admirable to be loyal to the to the people who first brought you to the big show. But at the same time, would he be better served to actually be in the Hawkeye wrestling room this whole time instead of, you know, being in Paris, maybe having kickboxing matches in your sparring session? Yeah, I mean, I don't know the entirety of what he is spending his training time doing. Maybe he is doing more of that than we realize. I also think, though, that it's always been the case, and it's probably only more so now, that it is not as easy for heavyweights to just sort of go on gym walkabout because there just aren't as many of them. And you, if you show up at some gym, like like an ATT or an AKA or something, and just be like, hey, I'm top heavyweight contender Cyril Gaon. I'd like to get some work in here for a couple weeks. All the other heavyweights at ATT and AKA are going to be like, what the fuck is this, man? Like, I might have to fight this guy someday. I, I'm hoping that I'll get, if especially if he's in these title conversations, I'm hoping I'll get the chance to fight this guy someday. And so we're going to bring him in here and, and give him the benefit of our experience. For what? He's not a team member. And right. I, I just think that there, the, the thing I'd always hear from heavyweights when I was in MMA gyms is that their big problem was bodies just finding the bodies they need consistently to train with. And then I think it's even dif- more difficult if you're saying, I need bodies who can do wrestling, and I need to find them in Paris, France. Like, those are not necessarily an easy combination of requests to to fulfill. So I, I'm sure that that is one of the things that they've been looking at. And I guess some of the question would be, like, I, I'm sure... Like you said, the game plan was out there. The blueprint was out there after the, the Francis and Ganu fight. So you knew we got to shore that up because other people are going to try that. But also, how long a lead time did you have knowing it was going to be John Jones next on this particular date so that you could prepare for John Jones specifically? Like That might affect you too because you got to get some people in there who can give you that look. That, that, and John Jones, one of the things about him is he can give you a range of looks. And that's a, that makes it a tough thing to prepare for. I, it's not necessarily me saying you can't get it done at the MMA factory with Fernand Lopez or in France. You probably can, but it's definitely going to take some planning. 
You're not yeah. just going to like look around the mats and be like, okay, who's the uh, awesome wrestling heavyweight we have here who is also a creative uh, and inventive striker? Like, there's a reason John Jones is special. And it's because yeah. there's not a whole lot of guys who do that. There's some members of the French national wrestling team are so mad at you right now. I'm sure they're listening to this and they're just, they're fuming, fuming in their berets at the slamming down their bottle of wine. They can't even need another bite of this baguette. They're so mad. (laughs) All right. It's prediction time. We're going to find out where the bone is buried in John Jones versus Cyril gone. Ben folks, put your prognostication hat on and tell me what happens here in the UFC heavyweight title fight. Okay. Anybody who's followed $20 whenever want to see again knows how good I am at predicting exact outcomes. Therefore, they'll want to jump right on this when I say, I think John Jones goes out there, takes, you know, maybe a, a first 30 to 60 seconds to sort of feel out the range on Cyril Gaon a little bit, see how he's going to move, and then just blast doubles his ass takes him down, gets on top, elbows, 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 and I think we're done in the first round. I think John Jones takes him down, ground and pound TKOs him, and I and I don't think we hear the words round two. Okay. There it is. It feels foolhardy to ever doubt John Jones in this sport. He's done so much. He's accomplished so many things. And yet, and yet we've never seen him do this We've never seen him move up. We've never seen him fight a guy that he couldn't just roughneck around the cage. And in fact, when we saw John Jones's tremendous physical advantage evaporate at 205 pounds, when guys like Dominic Reyes started to show up, when heavy hitters like Tiago Santos started to show up, John Jones started to look less and less devastating. Sometimes when he's out there against Dominic Reyes, it looked like he didn't know what he was going to do. And so I I got to go with Cyril Gaon here. I think John Jones will come out. I think he will fuck around on the feet a little bit too long. I think Cyril Gaon will stuff all of one takedown attempt. And then I think John Jones is going to get clipped. I think he's going to get punched by a heavyweight. And I think uh, that's going to be all she wrote. I'm taking Cyril Gaon by somewhat early KO or TKO, first or second round. And if we come out of this thing... With John Jones with the belt around his waist, I will feel like an idiot. I will just feel like a fool coming out here and picking against John Jones. What was I thinking? That's just kind of what I think will happen. You know what? I mean, I was trying to picture it as you were talking about it, and I I can. I can picture that possibility as well. Um, I guess that's what makes a fight like this so intriguing, though. Yeah. Other end of the spectrum, Valentina Shevchenko comes into this title defense against Alexa Grasso at minus 610. So a little bit of sprinkle potential there. If you're looking to sweeten up your parlay, just sprinkle a little of Valentina Shevchenko on top of it. And I agree, Alexa Grasso feels like a bit of an out-of-the-blue title challenger here for Valentina Shevchenko. You know, I guess on the other hand, you could say that's all we've got left. Because Valentina Shevchenko has been so dominant at this weight. Uh, Alexa Grasso has won four fights in a row. She has started to cash in a little bit on the potential we thought she had when she first arrived in the UFC. And frankly, things at women's flyweight appear to have livened up a little bit. What with 
Valentina Shevchenko's recent close call against Tyler Santos, what with Aaron Blanchfield now on the scene. And so I wonder, are we getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here to just discount Alexa Grasso in this fight? Yeah, I mean, it is worth considering that uh, Valentina Shevchenko in her mid-30s now, been on top for a while, so it wouldn't be absolutely unthinkable that she might be starting to fall off a little bit or that other people are starting to get a little bit more of the book on her. Um, I, it's tough to know whether that Tyler Santos fight was one night where your plan wasn't working that great, but you still managed to figure it out, dig deep, get a little help from an accidental clash of heads there, but you still you managed to get it done. And that's one thing I'll always take from the title reign of Demetrius Johnson, is especially the way he talked about it afterwards, where you're going to realize like, if you have to, if you're going to go on a long title reign like that, there's going to be a night sooner or later where you go on there and you don't have your best stuff. So can you still figure out a way to get it done on those nights? And and she did against Tyler Santos. So I think a lot of people will be looking at this one to see was that a one-off thing, or are we starting to see a, a little the signs? that Valentina Shevchenko's dominance might be fading in that division. At the same time, though, it does seem like Alexa Grasso is just kind of the next name on the list. Like there wasn't anything specifically that was making us say, okay, we got to have this fight now. Yeah. We just, we needed another title fight to to put on this, especially because you know anything could happen on John Jones fight week, but also we didn't want to take one of the big title fights that on its own could sell a pay-per-view. So that's what we use this for. Yeah. Uh, it would be foolhardy also, I think, as foolhardy as it is to question John Jones. It's foolhardy to question Valentina Shevchenko at this weight class where she's never lost. She's going for her eighth title defense here. I always come back to George St. Pierre and his comments about going on a lengthy title run, talking about walking the razor's edge. And when he finally did walk away and he was done with it, at least for the time being, he talked about what a relief it was to not have that target on his back, not you know, constantly carry those expectations of being the best and having to face, you know, the the, uh, revolving door of the best people the UFC can find to fight you, which I think is sometimes perhaps an understated reality of being the champion is that whoever you were fighting is always the best person they can find. And so, uh, you know, like you said, with Valentina Shevchenko, it's, it's maybe only a matter of time till she goes out there and, and, comes up against someone where she doesn't have the best stuff and what she does have isn't good enough. I just don't know if it's Saturday. I would guess yeah. probably not. I would guess Valentina Shevchenko probably rolls out of this thing uh, still as the champion, though it does seem like there are some tests on the horizon with Aaron Blanchfield and Tyler Santos and perhaps some others who might have the skill set to to give Valentina Shevchenko some trouble. And just like with Cyril Gaon, I'd have to say there is a blueprint now. There's a blueprint of what to do, of how to beat Valentina Shevchenko, and it's all going to come down to whether or not you can implement that, which, you know, again, some people, easier said than done. Yeah. Uh, what are you looking at here at the rest of this UFC 285 card that is interesting to you? There is a ton of stuff happening with this fight this is this gives me flashbacks to the old days you know we're getting back to doing that good shit here with the ufc putting together a very solid stacked ufc pay-per-view card for all of the bald man shout times that we have heard and all of the puffery and all of the ufc constantly telling us that the greatest ufc event of all time is whatever the next one is 
this one actually seems pretty great to me. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what I'm most looking forward to is my man Shavkat. Shavkat Rachmanov still undefeated, coming off uh, that win over Neil Magny and where he looked like he was just in total control the whole time and against a, a you know a tough dude. And to fight Jeff Neal, it seems like we're doing an appropriate gradual build here with Shavkat Rachmanov, maybe because we just have enough other stuff going on at welterweight. Uh, but where he's passing the tests one at a time, but he so far looks great doing it. And Jeff Neal's uh, another step up in that test for him. I'll be interested to see how he handles it. But that boy good, Chad. Yeah, yes, he is. I'm looking for, I always look forward to a chance to see him, and I think that he'll probably just continue getting better. Like, if he comes out here and still looks again like he can just handle these dudes no problem and he's able to do that to Jeff Neal, then if you're Colby Covington, I think you go, well, shit. <laughs> there, there goes my chance to talk my way into another title fight real quick here. Because that guy, he's, he's going to get fast-tracked pretty quickly after that. Also, though, um, while I know we are so, we did not exactly go hunting for somebody who would give uh, Bo Nickel his toughest possible test in his UFC debut, we seemed like, we, you know, when the phone rang and it, they said, we want you to fight Bo Nickel, you knew they weren't trying to get in the Jamie Pickett business. Yeah. Still, I'm interested to see that guy. I, the, the more I get to see of him, the the more I get to flesh out my opinion of how, how far he can actually go in MMA. Because so far, what we've seen, there's not a ton of tape out there. Um, so yeah. I'm always interested to see more of him. You talk about the heavy favorites, Valentina Shevchenko at more than minus 600, Shavkat Rachmanov at minus 500. Neither of them even sniffing Bo Nickel territory as you got Bo Nickel down here at minus 1,500 going off against Jamie Pickett. But I would agree with you. I think the seeing these, you know, we love a prospect, man. In almost all sports, but especially in MMA, we're excited to see the new blood. We're excited to see what these new guys can do. Shavkat Rachmanov has started to uh, invoke the Kamzat Chemaev clause, started to say maybe he's a guy that's on my radar. And obviously that would be a huge fight if and when it comes together. Uh, both of those guys seems like seem like they have all the potential in the world, and it seems like they are on a collision course, but I guess you got to get by Jeff Neal first. Bo Nickel, kind of the same thing, man. He sure talks a good game, I'll tell you that. He's out here saying, put me in there against the champion, put me in there against whoever next, and I will take them out, uh, which is a lot for a guy who hasn't really run up against some any stiff competition yet in the UFC. But again, he's a guy who seems to have all the skills, the, the appropriate skill set. So I am very interested to see if he can continue to build on, on what he has already done. And I would throw Ian Gary on that list also, a guy uh, who came over from Ireland with a lot of hype and has been as good as advertised in the UFC with three straight wins. He is 10-0 overall, the former Cage Warriors welterweight champion, uh, so I'm interested to see what he does out there in the featured prelim. Let me see if I can find real quick the betting line on Ian Gary. He is minus 600 as well. So if you like the favorites, uh, there's a lot of opportunity to make very small gains on some bets this weekend. You're saying a lot, of, a lot of sprinkling could be going on. Yeah, could be doing a lot of sprinkling. You could parlay up four or five fights on this before you get to uh, plus money. <laughs> Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Ordinarily, we'd be over on the Patreon page this week. I'm out this week, but uh, we'll be back next week with the proper to wrap up all the stuff that happens at UFC 285 and then look ahead to 
whatever is next with a full week of Patreon content coming at you. Check us out, patreon.com slash co-main event. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out.